from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. This is Writer's Talk. I'm Bill Feinberg. Today we're going to be interviewing Kate Lambert. She is an actor, a writer, and an improviser. She's currently a member of the Second City Touring Company. She's written and acted in shorts that have been featured on sites like The Huffington Post, MTV, Cosmopolitan, Perez Hilton, Feministing, Politics USA, College Humor, Laughspin, and Italy's Vanity Fair. Welcome, Kate Lambert, to Writer's Talk. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited to interview you, Kate. Out of acting, writing, and improvising, which one of those things would you say is your favorite? I started as an actor. That's what I did in college. I was a theater major at Wake Forest University. And then I started improvising and then writing. So that was the order for me. I actually have really gotten into writing these last couple of years. It's been really fun to do shorts on YouTube and just constantly be creating because you're not doing a show or, or getting hired to be in a show. You might as well make your own work. Okay. Now, did you do any acting before college and you just really got into it in college? Or is college your first experience with it? No, I actually did it throughout childhood, elementary, middle school, and high school as well. Um, but for a while there, I actually thought I wanted to be a news anchor um, in college. I ran the, the news program. For a while there, I was really interested in reporting and journalism. Now, uh, what is the largest crowd that you've ever performed in front of? I did perform at the Chicago Bluesgrass Festival a couple of years ago for a ton of people. And so that was actually a down of the theater here in Chicago. There were a ton of people there, I think over a thousand, but it was pretty hilarious. They were not expecting to see comedy. <laughs> yeah, we basically did a satirical sketch, sort of like a send-up of pop stars, and people were there to see Blue Bluegrass, so they were like, wait, what? Okay, now uh, what's the coolest venue you've ever performed in? Well, actually, earlier this year, we got to perform at the Smithsonian, and that was awesome. Um, I grew up in Virginia, so I went to the Smithsonian you know, throughout my childhood, and to actually be there um, was really cool. And then after the show, the museum was actually closed, so it was so cool to sort of um, you know, go through the back way when the museum was closed down. It was really neat. Now, do you have a favorite city to perform in? You know I'm always excited to go places I haven't been before, and that's one of the really cool things about this job is that you know we're constantly going to places that you might never go on your own. Um, earlier this year, I went to Denver, which is a place I've always wanted to go, and then also Philadelphia. We performed right outside of Philadelphia, and then um, later this year, we're going to be in La Jolla. I'm really excited to go to the places that I've always wanted to visit. The first time you ever performed, were you nervous? Yeah, I think a, a little bit of nerves are always good. This is something I've always going to do my whole life, you know, um, when I was a little kid, I would make my parents watch shows. I did a great mime routine, if you ever want to see it. Uh, you know, I was always uh, writing and making up things. So it sort of just sort of seemed like a natural thing for me to do, um, is to go into performing. But I think, I, I, you know, a good amount of nerves is uh, healthy. It's a good, good energy, so bones are not petrified. <laughs> Now, do you still ever get nervous? Like, if it's, like, a really big crowd or if it's, like, a really prestigious event? Sometimes maybe just be more excited in, in the beginning. But once you get out there, a lot of that just fades away because you're just so focused on, on the actual show itself and not how you're feeling about it at the moment. Do you have any, like, pre-show ritual or do you do anything to get ready for shows, like, mentally? I'm in the second stage touring company that, that I'm in. There's three of them. This is actually Green Co. And what we do is, before the show, everyone has some inside jokes with each other and everyone has the exact same way they say the jokes in the same order, and we always say it to each other. So it's sort of a fun way to connect with everyone before we go on the stage. Now, the show that you're doing, it's the Second City Laughing Matters, correct? That's right, uh-huh. It's going to be the best of the Second City um, from its over 50-year history. So you'll be seeing sketches that may have been written and originally performed by people like Steve Carell, Tina Fey, Rachel Dratt. Now, is, is Laughing Matters... Is it? I know it's a combination kind of sketch and improv. Is it? Does it lean one way more than the other? 
it's primarily sketch, but we also do improv. Um, some scenes that we have are primarily sketch, but we will go to the audience throughout the scene itself to do improv. And then some of the scenes are based entirely at, um, on improv. Which do you personally think is more fun, improv or sketch? It depends. I, I really love both. I'm not just saying that. It really is fun to do to do both, and especially when you know you perform in a great group like I do. It's always fun to see what people come up come up with. I'll, I'll usually call my family afterwards and, and quote things people have said in improv scenes. <laughs> One of the ladies in the group, Eileen, always has really good puns that she can come up with with improv scenes. I usually call and let them know some of the great things that she said the night before. How long does one show typically last? The show itself should be around 90 minutes and there'll be an intermission. How many performers will typically be performing on one show? Five actors and our music director and then also our stage manager. So there's always um, seven of us on the road together. Will all five people be on the stage pretty much the whole time or will there be like two people scenes, three people scenes? You'll see a variety of combinations. Um, yes, some will be two people scenes, and then some will be group scenes. So it really is dependent on the, the sketch. You got to perform on a Norwegian cruise line? Yeah, I, I worked on a Norwegian cruise line in uh, 2011. So it was great because I left Chicago in February and I went to the Caribbean. So I was like, what could be better? I lived on the boat for four months. Was it a blast the whole time, or did you kind of go stir-crazy after a little while? I'm sure people uh, have and uh, do go stir-crazy, but it was really fun. I was with some truly incredible performers, too, people from the Canadian uh, Touring Company for Second City, and then someone who was actually from Atlanta. And then the other woman that I was with is was actually on the main stage of Second City and someone who I've admired for years. Great to be able to work with people like that and learn from them and get better. How long do you typically spend on the road with Second City? It depends on the time of year. Fall is really busy and typically in the fall we'll actually be gone just about every weekend and then it can taper off a little bit through after you know Christmas time and everything like that and then it will start picking up again probably in the spring and then eventually the fall again. Now when did you actually start working with Second City? I got hired in 2010 for the cruise line and then I went on the cruise line in the beginning of 2011. And then when I returned from that, I got hired as an understudy for the Second City Touring Company. And then I was an understudy for about a year. And then I got promoted to be a cast member of one of the touring companies. Now, how many weeks would you say you spend on the road per year? It really depends. Sometimes it's just weekends, and then sometimes it's, it's a good part of the week. It depends on, on how many things you know we, we'll have in a row. For example, uh, later this year, actually next month, we're going to be in Austin for three or four days, and then we're going to be in two other places in Texas a couple days before that. So I'll be gone the majority of the week. It's really dependent on the actual schedule. Sometimes groups will get extended times that they perform in certain cities, uh, they're theatrical, so you can actually be somewhere for a week at a time or even longer. So does that make it kind of crazy or chaotic to have like a home life and then a road life? I laugh because it looks like I'm literally on the lamb. There's always an open suitcase on my bedroom floor, ready to go and escape at any time. I've had to do some like promotional road work, and the hardest thing is trying to find places to eat. Has that been your experience at all? Yeah, that can be true. Luckily, though, uh, we've got some very healthy eaters on our company, so it's not hard to find people that will join you in that and looking for you know healthier places to eat. They're pretty good about looking at places that you know vegetarian options, just healthier options, and restaurants etc. on the road. What would you say are some of of your biggest accomplishments? Well, something that is professionally that I've been excited to do um, in the last couple of years is do a lot more writing. And then I'm in several groups that, you know, I will write sketches or shorts for. Also, in the last few years, I also just did things on my own that I would 
write and then put on my own YouTube channel. And that was really rewarding to do. And my friend uh, Bobby Richards actually directed and edited all those, and he's fantastic. So it was it was really cool to do. Uh, last year, I tried to do more political things. I did something about uh, women's rights and then uh, about uh, gay marriage rights. Um, and that was really rewarding to at least put something out there to have my stamp on it. Now, w- one of the other uh, YouTube videos I saw that you were in, uh, the Bangarang video, Hook is one of the favorite movies from my childhood. Yes, yeah, and we did it with Link Cuisines. I have to tell you, though, I never thought I would get sick of cake after we shot that video. I had a headache for like eight hours from a sugar high. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and I was the person who was off screen um, whipping the icing at people's faces, and I was. we had to try so many times in order for me to actually nail someone in the face with the icing. That's one of the best parts about this is that the things that I do, I'm like, I can't believe this is my job, but this is what I get to do. What are some of your goals? Well, then Second City Touring Company was a huge one. Constantly writing and creating my own material and the same thing um, outside of Second City. I'm in a group called the Katie Dids, and they actually wrote a web series um, called Teachers. Working on something like a TV show or doing movies would be, have me over the moon. I'd be so excited to do something like that. All right, so I think uh, I think that's going to bring us to the end here. Just got one more question for you. What's the number one reason people should come out to the Lincoln Theater in Columbus on February 8th and 9th to see the Second City Laughing Matters? The group that I'm with is just uh, a bunch of really talented and incredible performers, and you'll definitely want to see what they come up with. Thank you, Kate Lambert. The show again is The Second City Laughing Matters on February 8th and 9th at the Lincoln Theater in Columbus, Ohio. For Writer's Talk, I'm Bill Feinberg. From the Center for Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Krista Benson. Dr. Christopher Emden is an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics, Science, and Technology at Teachers College, Columbia University, where he also serves as a director of secondary school initiative at the Urban Science Education Center. He's the author of the book, Urban Science Education for the Hip Hop Generation, and is also a columnist for the Huffington Post. Dr. Emden holds a PhD in urban education with a concentration in mathematics, science, and technology, master's degrees in both natural sciences and education administration, and bachelor's degrees in physical anthropology, biology, and chemistry. Dr. Emden will also be joining us here at OSU in February as the featured keynote speaker for the second annual OSU Hip Hop Literacies Conference on February 15th at 6 p.m. at the OSU Union. Dr. Emden, thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to be here with you. So can you tell me a little bit about the work that you'll be presenting on at the conference next month? So next month, we are, you know, the the conference is focused on sort of multiple literacies as they relate to hip-hop. And so my talk and my presence there will be focused around exploring the multiple literacies within hip-hop culture. So whether it is traditional literacy, whether it is digital literacy, whether it's media literacy, whether it's historical literacy, these sort of 21st century literacies as they play out within hip-hop culture, whether it's through uh, rap or rapping and rappers or through the text that they produce and writing, or, or it's even in, you know, the, the, their media presences and how that means or how that generates a certain type of understanding of literacy in the 21st century. So we're just looking at hip-hop more broadly, how it intersects with the world of literacy. Um, I'm a scientist by training, so I'm going to speak specifically about how hip-hop and STEM are connected. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about how hip-hop and STEM are connected? 
Absolutely. So what's STEM? STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. To be a person who knows STEM or understands STEM um, or a person who's a scientist or mathematician, there are certain types of dispositions, traits, uh, ways of looking at the world that you have to possess. You know, our most brilliant scientists have always been folks who are deeply insightful. They make, uh, they're anti-authoritarian. They're skeptics. They, they, they have keen observation skills. They draw connections between seemingly disconnected ideas and make them make sense for the rest of the scientific community. And so what I found in my research is the same skills and tenets and characteristics and dispositions and attributes of the most prolific and brilliant scientists of our time, we also find um, within hip-hop or, or in or with hip-hop artists. And so my work has been uncovering the science-mindedness, I call this, this, these things science-mindedness, the science-mindedness of hip-hop artists, the science-mindedness of urban youth of color who are deeply immersed in hip-hop culture. And so then my work as an educator or as a pedagogue is to awaken this science-mindedness that the youth have and possess already to help them to see themselves as scientists and tech, and tech advocates and mathematicians and engineers in the future. Awesome. Okay, so my background is in women's gender and sexuality studies. And a lot of the time when we talk about um, efficacy in education, we always kind of end up falling back on the phrase, you can't see what you, we, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And so um, I'm wondering, how do you think that bringing out this anti-authoritarian um, nature of science that is maybe not the thing that a lot of youth associated with science, how do you think that helps um, youth, especially the urban youth of color that you just talked about, connect to science in a different way? Well, you know, the, the thing is that there's, there's sort of an innate fascination with science, mathematics, even engineering that already exists in these young people. So the work really isn't in helping them to see, you know, some like big academic scientist, you know, you know climbing up up down the, the stairs of the ivory tower. Um, it's more of helping them to be able to see how it exists within themselves. You know, whenever I work with young people or when I talk about my work with young people, they always say, well, you know, so do you, do you present them with, you know, science role models? And, and that is a part of the work. But the big part of the work is helping them to identify themselves as scientists and to be able to see the scientist or the mathematician in their peer or their immediate idols. So when I describe to a young person that when Jay talks about Nas and says, dog, you never lived it, you witnessed it from your folks pad, you scribbled in a notepad and you created your life, that critique of Nas, of him having the ability to look out, a note, uh, out of a window and, and, and describe his whole entire lifespan, is, is, it means that he has the same skills as, as an amazing and brilliant field scientist. And so when you show young people that their icons and their heroes actually have the same skills as scientists, they start seeing that they, are more, that, that they have the potential to be able to do the exact same thing. And then they, are, they start seeing another young person who's like them, who they believe to be as great an MC as Nas or have the same skills as Nas um, as a scientist as well. And so when they see the, the, the person next to them as a scientist and they get to see themselves as scientists, and then all of a sudden they start reimagining new possibilities. The, the, the key goal of the work is to have young people who've been traditionally moved out of the world of STEM or the world of education more broadly to start imagining new possibilities and seeing themselves as experts in those domains as well. Awesome. That, that building expertise thing is really interesting to me. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you brought, what brought you to hip hop and teaching? Well, I, you know, I don't think I was ever brought to hip hop. I think I, I was born into it. Um, and I feel the same way about teaching. Um, as a young person, you know, I, I always grew up around hip hop music, hip hop culture, 
um, you know, the, the, the people I was raised around. My, my parents have, been, have always been sort of music lovers. So it might not have been hip-hop music per se. It might have been like my pops was probably playing Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. Um, but but the, 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 there's a certain sort of sensibility about urbanness that, 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 that's birthed in, those, in that type of music. You know, when Marvin Gaye is describing inner-city blues or when Stevie Wonder has a lyric that says that, you know, describing someone who's living for the city, this, this, this critique and, and description of the beauty of urbanness is what hip-hop is birthed out of. And so my parents, you know, they come from that tradition, and so I was listening to that music. And then the, the minute I was old enough to make my own decisions about music, I listened to the contemporary iterations of, of Marvin and Stevie. And the con contemporary Marvin and Stevie are, the, you know, they, they are the, um, the Jay-Zs and the, and the Nas's and the, and the De La Souls and the Tribe Called Quest. So I was born into hip-hop because I came from a family that understood uh, the value of music in the African-American and urban community. So, you know, I, I was just born into it. And, and then I, I started making those decisions to, to, to study hip-hop or to understand hip-hop more just because it was all that was around me. I, could, I couldn't escape it if I wanted to. Um, teaching came because, you know, as a, as a hip-hop artist or, or as an aspiring artist, as a young person, so, you know, as a, as a 13 to 14-year-old in Brooklyn, New York, you know, who, who grew up wanting to be a rapper and wanting to be an MC, you know, I, I was always a part of hip-hop ciphers. And being a part of hip-hop ciphers means I was always around other rappers. And, being other, and, and wanting to be like uh, the best rappers meant that I was always around kids who were older than I was. So as a 13-year-old, I'm in a rap cipher uh, with 15 and 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds. And so they would perform, and I would soak in what they were doing. And what they were doing in a sort of organic, natural hip-hop cipher process is teaching me. So I was learning how to teach from those people, and um, I made the decision to go into teaching itself. You know, after I graduated with my undergraduate degrees and and, and my master's degree, you know, I, I decided that I didn't want to go into into science, you know, uh, per se, um, because you know th that that work was boring, and because I never saw scientists that looked like me when I was in grad school. Um, so my, my I wanted to go back and create scientists. And, and, then, and then when I got into the classroom, my hip-hopness, uh, my experiences within hip-hop, my participation in ciphers, um, they, they sort of evolved to become making me become a hip-hop pedagogue. Awesome. So this whole world of hip-hop pedagogy, it's, it's both, it seems both new and also not at all new. Um, mm -hmm. How have you seen this community kind of emerging and being a more cohesive and organized, or at least a community that's talking more about uh, ourselves as hip-hop pedagogues? Well, I think what's happened is that people have gotten to the point where we realize that traditional approaches to teaching and learning have not worked for um, urban marginalized populations and those who are allies of urban marginalized populations. You know, we know that people have changed curriculum. We know that people have changed ways of thinking. We know that they've recruited teachers from, you know, Ivy League institutions to urban areas. I mean, we've done everything possible, and we realize that all those things are not changing or, or, or shrinking the achievement gaps. At the same time that we realize that traditional approaches have not been working, um, those of us who, who are born in with and who study hip-hop have 
have witnessed the brilliance of hip-hop artists and youth who are into hip-hop. You know, we see them on stage commanding the imaginations of hundreds of thousands of people, having a whole crowd say, put your hands up, and they stay there. Um, you know, we've, we've seen them weave these beautiful narratives. We've seen them use metaphor and analogy in these distinct yet beautiful ways. We've seen them describe their life experiences in these amazing ways. We've, we've seen them think, talk, uh, create. And, and express brilliance, and we've seen that in schools that brilliance has not been allowed to manifest itself. So I think hip-hop pedagogues just are born out of being frustrated with seeing brilliance outside of classrooms and the absence of it in classrooms and trying to create a scenario where we can blur those lines and we can create opportunities for kids to be able to express their brilliance within schools. And that means pushing against the status quo and pushing against the tradition. Um, and that's in itself in the spirit of hip-hop. So hip-hop pedagogues are just, you know, they're just hip-hoppers, you know, pushing to create new possibilities in classrooms. And um, right now, we've sort of generated a critical mass of folks who realize that there's no other, um, there's no other artifact in the world that captures, that captures young people like hip-hop, and so we want to bring that into the classroom. At the same time as that's been happening, there have also been, you know, there have been bootleggers, which is what ha also happens with hip-hop. You know, there are folks who aren't really deeply committed to hip-hop and hip-hop culture or, 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 or urban youth of color, but, but sort of, uh, you know, align themselves to hip-hop pedagogy because it's, it's, to them, new and trending. So we have this sort of underground hip-hop pedagogy, and then we have this sort of commercialized hip-hop pedagogy, just like we have commercialized hip-hop music and underground hip-hop music. And, you know, the folks at OSU, I would argue, are, are, you know, are the underground. You know, they're the folks in the trenches. They're the folks who are true to the culture and the authenticity of being hip-hop. And, you know, at, at some point, those folks have to converge. At some point, those folks have to come together to, 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 to sort of create a mission statement of sorts about how they're going to battle the world of traditional education. And that's what's going to happen at OSU. That's an awesome transition to a question I have for you about music. Um, okay. I, come, I came up in music in the early 90s. And so I had a really troubled relationship with hip hop as, as a young woman um, because that was the time when the commercial hip hop genre was so dominated by very violent gangster rap mm -hmm. um, and a lot of misogyny, <clears throat> mm -hmm. a lot of talent, too, but a lot of misogyny. And. I was not aware of where else to look and it took me a while to find underground hip hop and to find yep. other forms of expression in hip hop. Yep. And I'm wondering, like, are there parts of, are there aspects of hip hop that you struggle with or that you have struggled with? And, and how do you build that into the way that you work with hip hop and teaching? Yeah. I mean, I think that my two loves, science and hip hop, um, they, they, they put me in these really weird conundrums. Um, you know, science, and if you look at the statistics uh, surrounding women in physics, it's dismal. Um, yeah. When you think about, you know, um, Watson and Crick and the way that they literally positioned a brilliant woman who, without which they could not come up with the structure of DNA and, and just push her to the margins, you know, the, 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 the misogyny in science is there. Um, when, we, when we talk about, um, you know, how women are pushed into areas like environmental science, but yet pushed out of what we call the quote-unquote hard sciences, you know, those conundrums, those tensions are the same things that I feel when I listen to hip-hop artists who are sort of blatantly misogynistic and violent. Um, so, so my, my two loves um, are, 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 each, are each seriously problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that to say this, which means then that I have a responsibility as an educator to ensure that I create a counter-narrative. And so 
within hip hop, like in science, and like with the world at large, like with movies, I find these, I find my, I find these issues that do, that go against what I believe in. But then it also means that I, myself, as a participant in the culture, have to create new possibilities. And this is why, you know, I do projects like the Science Genius Project, where we are forcing young people to push against commercialized hip hop by allowing them to have opportunities to create their own versions of hip hop that are more accurately descriptive about their own experiences. Mm. And when they're, when, so it's not even a matter of just ingesting it. It's also a matter of creating it. There's no way we can fight against misogyny and violence in hip-hop if we don't give young people the alternatives and give them the opportunities to be able to create hip-hop that are true to their experiences, that, that shows them, that, that, that allows them to show how they love their families, how they love their sisters, how they love their mothers, how they, they, they shun violence, how they don't want to go to jail, how they don't want to sell dope off the ice. Um, so in order for us to be able to counter the narratives about hip-hop that are existent and that are, that are versions of commercialized hip-hop, we have to create opportunities for young people to be able to create their own new versions of hip-hop and also promote those within hip-hop culture that may be sub-commercialized or that may be getting some visibility that present a counter-narrative. So you can present to people that Kendrick Lamar exists. And, and he's on the radio. You can present to young people that Big Crit exists and he's on the radio. And you can present to young people that even when those artists make statements that may push misogyny or push violence, that hip, what hip-hop does is it opens up a space for us to be able to critique it. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a matter of shunning it. It's a matter of embracing it and then critiquing it and then giving young people the opportunity to create new versions of it. And it seems like in a lot of ways that that mirrors battle culture, right? That yeah. that in fact, there's always a chance in hip hop to respond in a way of that course. doesn't actually exist in a lot of or other parts of American culture. Yep, I, I mean that's brilliant. That that's a brilliant point. Um, so of course, hip hop goes beyond music. Um, do you integrate any other forms of hip hop culture uh, or in inform information that comes from those those uh, aspects of culture like graffiti or like dance or any of the other you know parts of this larger culture yeah i think i think that's the aspect of my work that that folks you know are, are most intrigued about is the embracing of rap and the use of rap but also looking at how um my approach to instruction focuses on the on the hip-hop sensibilities and and the culture of hip-hop hip -hop more broadly so i look at hip-hop as any other culture and mm -hmm. and people have sort of said that but if you look at culture what makes culture 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 is filled with schema and practices the schema and the practices actually create the elements of hip-hop so the practices are graffiti b-boying djing and emceeing and the schema the schematic understanding are the knowledge itself. And so in my work, I help to, to help teachers to be able to develop their knowledge itself, to, to be authentic about what they bring to the classroom. And then we use um, what I call a reality pedagogy to, 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 to infuse the other elements of hip-hop into how teachers teach. So for example, you know, in my classrooms, I'm a firm believer in teachers taking a wall of space in their classroom, painting it in blackboard paint, giving students chalk, and giving them the opportunity to go and tag up on that wall. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it gives students an outlet, but also it allows them to have what graffiti, what graffiti would give them, which is a space for fame and a space for visibility. Um, I'm a firm believer in the use of b-boying. When a student scores, scores the answer correct in my classroom, you know, we all get up and we give a b-boy stance and paying homage to hip-hop, but also to realize that in classroom spaces, there has to be an opportunity for young people to move and have verve and have excitement and, and be expressive. 
um, we, we've, we've looked at how DJing actually is analogous to the use of technology in classrooms and how we are better served using or creating, uh, having uh, DJ equipment in classrooms than having a whole bunch of computers, that we could have a whole bunch of computers and use the budget for one computer to buy a DJ equipment or production equipment, and that we can use those things as opportunity to teach science and mathematics in classrooms as well. So, you know, my work really embraces the complexities of hip-hop and the use of the elements through reality pedagogy. Excellent. All right, my last question. Who is currently inspiring your work right now? Um, my work is inspired by by life. Uh, you know, it's such a tough question. Uh, if it's as far as scholars are concerned, you know, I wouldn't even start listing because if I listed, I'd forget someone and I'd feel terrible. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then I wouldn't be giving props to all the OGs in the game. So I won't even go there and give shout-outs. Um, but my work is inspired Every day when I walk outside my door, when I walk outside the doors to my spot in the Bronx, New York, I, 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 I am inspired to do di different work. It's the young person who walks down the street whose pants are sagging and is still managing to walk at like a, a certain speed. I'm like, yo, how do you walk so quickly and your pants are <laughs> off your ass? Like that's inspiring to me. You know, there's, there's a certain multimodality in, in being able to do that. You know, I'm inspired by, you know, the music young people are listening to. I'm inspired by reggaeton, how they take aspects of reggae, aspects of hip hop, aspects of Latino, Latina music, merge it together and create this, 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 this this beautiful hybrid that calls forth so many different traditions. You know, I'm inspired by the sound of the subway tracks as they go forth and, and how people are able to engage in conversations despite that background noise. And how can I use that information about background noise to, to, um, to teach my youth, my students better because I know that they are accustomed to background noise. And so in my classroom, I can't have drop everything and be completely silent because then it will be creating symbolic violence for them because their worlds outside of the classroom have noise in the background every day. So, you know, my, my, my pedagogical approach is informed by living in and with hip-hop every day. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Emden, for being with me today on Ohio State's Writers Talk. Uh, the conference, again, is OSU Hip-Hop Literacies Conference, and Dr. Emden will be presenting a keynote on Friday the 15th at 6 p.m. at the OSU Union. Register online for this free conference and hear more of Dr. Emden's conversation around hip-hop and teaching. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. I'm Krista Benson, and keep writing. Keep writing.